If you guys remember, we've been going through the ways of Jesus um, in the book of John. Um, and so last time, Michael talked about the ways of Jesus um, in the way of celebration. He talked about it from John 2, about how Jesus threw this party, um, what that party signified, and how it invites us into this rhythm of celebration. And so we're looking, and in the book of John, we're looking at how Jesus lived. And today we're going to look at this passage from John 4 um, that talks about how Jesus welcomed those who were far off. How Jesus witnessed, so to speak, how Jesus shared his gospel with those around him. And we're going to look at that as sort of an encouragement and also like a kind of a template for us as we might consider how we are also invited by God to share about him with those around us. I think witnessing in today's climate uh, is not the most popular thing even among Christians. Um, this is a uh, some stuff from the Barn Group, which does research, um, very helpful research that kind of talks about trends in, you know, in, in America and specifically in regard to spirituality and religion. Um, here's a quote from the report. It says that Christians in, in America today have to live in this tension between both Jesus' commands to tell others the good news and also growing cultural taboos against proselytizing, a core part of Christianity from its origins and many practicing Christians believe is essential for the salvation of their listeners. So there's, it's been defined as this kind of tension of, in one hand, like if we're reading the Bible and the way we've been taught, we know God's called us to share, but on the other hand, it's just becoming more and more taboo to do so. And there are these two, I don't think you can see these letters, they're too small, right? There's these two, you know, statistics from this report that I found were interesting. The first one is, you know, how many of you guys would agree that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus? And those four circles actually represent four different generations. Uh, the orange one is generation, um, is, is the millennial generation. Gen Z isn't included on this, unfortunately. Um, the blue is Gen X, and, and it keeps going on, baby boomers and whatever. Um, so the, the orange one is the most recent one. And so, you know, everyone pretty much agrees. It's a little lower for, you know, the millennials, but everyone agrees, yeah, you know, like, yeah, what we want is for people to come to know Jesus. And the next question is, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And 47% of millennials agreed with that. And so it's weird. <laughs> I don't know if you see the cognitive dissonance there, right? On one hand, they're like, yeah, it's good for, for people to come to know Jesus, but it's wrong to share about him. And we, we shouldn't share about him with people of other faiths because that's, you know, no, we shouldn't do that. And so that, that kind of marks in many ways, and I, I'm, I'd be interested to see what Gen Z thinks. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because this sort of kind of defines our generation. And some of us might like, you know, in our hearts be like, yeah, you know, I know, yeah, I know Jesus, I know people should know about Jesus, but at the same time, I feel weird. I feel just this awkwardness. I even feel like I'm not even sure if it's appropriate for me to actually share my personal beliefs with other people. Well, today, one of the things I want to talk about from this passage of John 4 is to give us a picture of how Jesus shares the gospel how Jesus shares his gospels, because it's his good news in John 4. So I want to show three things as we look at this story, this really famous story of how Jesus encounters this woman, the Samaritan woman. And so we're going to look at first the specific person that he seeks. Um, who is this person that he seeks, and what does that tell us? Um, second, we're look at how he draws them. How does he actually um, draw them in to this good news, to the story that he has to tell them? And finally, we're going to look at what results 
the joy that results through this encounter that this person has with Jesus. So first, the person, the one that Jesus pursues. We look in John 4, um, we start reading from chapter, from verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's He's leaving Judea, he's going for Galilee, which is on the other side of Israel. And he had to pass through Samaria, which is in the middle. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is the setting for this kind of interaction that he has. Now at this time, a woman from Samaria, from the local town, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It's not this rude thing, it's just, hey, can I have a drink, you know. Um, sometimes tone doesn't get translated well from Greek or whatever to, to English. The Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For it says the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so we find First, that there is something very unlikely about this person that Jesus has chosen to talk to. You might say there are a lot of reasons why Jesus really shouldn't be talking to her. Um, first things first, I mean, you know, just going down list, she was Samaritan, um, as you guys saw, and it kind of text explains a little bit that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So what was that about? Well, the Jews hated the Samaritans, is what that was about, and the Samaritans probably hated the Jews likewise, um, because the Samaritans were this kind of semi-Jewish group of people, semi-Orthodox, you know, kind of believed in some of the things the Jewish people believed, but they were syncretistic, they mixed their beliefs with other people, they were this mixed race, and so the Jews kind of saw these Samaritans, unfortunately, as of this unclean and unpure people, these people that were just all over the place, or kind of like what they were supposed to be, but but just impure, just unclean. And so Jews did not like to associate with Samaritans. Um, it's famously said that a lot of times, you know, for people wanted to travel from Judea to Galilee, you know, they would go to great lengths to pass by the Samaritans because they're like, yeah, I, I really, you know, I don't want to be in that area. That's not, these aren't the people I want to associate with. Second of all, she was a woman. Um, in that time, uh, you know, Jewish men did not just randomly talk to random women. <laughs> it was just, that was not a thing. Upstanding Jewish men did not talk to women, certainly did not talk to Samaritan women. And so there's already something very weird about this kind of dynamic. Um, you know, this was just not the custom of the day. It would have been seen as improper and even perhaps a little bit inappropriate. And we see this actually reflected later in the disciples, where they're just frankly confused as why Jesus is talking to this lady over here. Second of all, um, I'm going to, you know, third of all, I'm going to actually mix this order a little bit. She was, um, as we're going to see, she was promiscuous. Um, so she had five husbands, um, as we're going to see later. Um, so she was in this kind of place where she was in between relationships. Um, and so she was kind of, you know, again, if you're imagining for a Jewish man, this is like another reason why you should not talk to this person. And because of her promiscuity, she was an outcast in her village. Um, much has been said about the fact that this, this woman is coming to draw water at the well at the hottest time of the day. It's around the sixth hour, which is noontime. 
And people don't draw water during noontime when it's really hot. Um, people usually draw water um, in the mornings, at dawn, or at dusk. So why was this woman all alone drawing water at this odd time in this day? Well, they're saying that it's clear that this person was an outcast. Perhaps others had seen her, you know, even in her own village, as this kind of sexually sinful woman. Um, perhaps she didn't want to hear the gossip or the slander you know, or the shame from the other women, and that's why she chose not to associate with them. She chose to go on her own. You know, this was, this was a hurting person, right? And this was a person who had felt rejected from a lot of places, who had been looking, you know, for satisfaction, um, and who, who, who was in this place of need. And finally, she was a stranger. And, you know, for a lot of us, that's a reason why not to talk to somebody, just because we don't know them, right? Um, and so there are all kinds of reasons why Jesus could have completely ignored, and probably, you know, according to religious customs of the day, she probably should have ignored this woman who had come. Um, but I find it so powerful and so interesting that Jesus chooses to talk to her intentionally. And it's not just like making conversation. He seeks her, right? And we see, actually, that she actually was someone that Jesus was looking for. This wasn't just some kind of incidental sort of it thing. Oh, okay, I'm make the best of the situation. This is the only person I got, and I got to share the gospel with somebody. No, that was not the case at all. Um, Jesus reveals in the course of the conversation that he had been seeking her this whole time. And he says this later. I'm skipping a little ahead. The hour is coming now here when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship you. Such people like yourself, Samaritan woman, right? And so Jesus reveals that there is this kind of intentional heart that he has for her. I think that's something that I wonder if we miss a lot as those of us who are called to kind of witness and to show God's love to the people around us. I wonder if it's easy for us to often sort out in our minds who are the people who are likely to become Christians and who are the people who are unlikely to become Christians. I think that's oftentimes how we share the gospel. We start with, all right, this person is already pretty cleaned up. And they seem like they have everything, you know, they seem, I could see them in church. You know, like, they seem, they, they like following rules. You know, and church is about following rules, apparently. So, you know, I could see them there or something. You know, I think, I think a lot of times people think that way. You know, and we, and we see these people that, you know, we, we perhaps love and we care about, but we're like, I don't know, you know, I, they're a little raw, they're a lot unrefined, I don't know what it is, you know, I can't see them becoming a Christian. And sometimes we're blinded by our own prejudices, our own judgments on people, and sometimes we gatekeep even the good news from people who really actually need to hear it. I wonder if we miss the one because of these kinds of outside sort of external situations, outside things um, that we see about people. I have pictures of three people up here that kind of are just, just different people from different reasons why you might, if you were a person in their lives, why you probably wouldn't share the gospel with them. Uh, the person on the left, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She was a former tenured English professor at Syracuse. And at times, she was an expert in LGBTQ studies. She led a community at the time there. Um, and she was this kind of well-respected member of the community. Um, and, and it's interesting, actually, how she becomes Christian. And it's through this witness of this just local dude, this local pastor. Um, she wrote this kind of scathing article against Christians at one point. And 
she got a lot of hate mail from Christians, unfortunately, and a lot of fan mail from people who hate Christians. But there's this one letter that she didn't really know what to do with, and it was from a local pastor. And the pastor, you know, she, she noted the kind and warm tone of the letter, and the pastor just simply invited her to have coffee sometime and said, hey, would you be down to talk about some of these things? And what began was a friendship, this very unlikely friendship between this woman who had a lot of things to dislike about Christianity and this man who was just like, I'm going to just be a good neighbor and reach out to this person. And it's over the course of years of friendship where, you know, they became friends and she would come over and they would talk. And, and this man, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was gentle, he was warm. He never, he never pushed her. He never, he never, you know, tried to make a project out of her or anything. He just believed in what God was doing in her life. And he, and he just went along. He was just faithful. Um, I wonder for so many people if we would have looked at somebody and been like, well, you seem too entrenched in certain things that are oppositional to Christianity or seem oppositional to Christianity. So, you know, I'm not really, I don't think that's possible. I don't really think you're somebody I should be, you know, sharing with. Another woman, Jackie Hill Perry in the middle. Um, I realize I did choose two people from LGBTQ backgrounds, and that's not necessarily to say that, you know, that's, but I think for a lot of Christians, I think there is this kind of fear of like, wow, there, there are people who, you know, maybe because of the political climate today or because of the cultural climate today made me seem more predisposed to reject Christianity. And I wonder if there is this kind of sense that we're like, well, I'm not even going to try. You know, I'm not even going to. And there's this person that Jackie Hilpera, she was a, a Christian spoken word and a hip-hop artist. She was the author of a book called Gay Girl, Good God. And she talks about it. <laughs> you know, she talks about how she needed the gospel, you know, and she talks about the faithful witness of people who weren't afraid, you know, to love her and to, and to just kind of meet her where she was. I think about C.S. Lewis, the brilliant atheist Oxford professor. Um, I mean, it would be intimidating for any of us, <laughs> you know, who came to faith over years and years of conversations with his fellow professors, J.R.R. Tolkien being one of them. He wrote The Lord of the Rings, you know, of all things, at a bar. You know, they just hung out in a bar, just a couple professors, some Oxford professors, you know, just having a pint after work. And it was through that, you know, that C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous, you know, defenders of the Christian faith in the century, came to slowly believe in the message of the gospel. He describes himself as the world's most reluctant convert. I wonder for us how many times we reject, how many times we pass over people simply because of what they look like, because of what they seem like, what we can observe from the outside. And I think for some of us, perhaps, you know, this is the advantage of not growing up in the church. I think about for some of us, we have that testimony even for ourselves, perhaps. You know, we perhaps were a person at some point where people were like, uh, I don't know about inviting that person. I don't know if that person's ever going to be Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I became Christian in college. I was somebody that somebody invited to come to know the gospel. I was the friend in high school that people would kind of come to church and they didn't really believe that I would really be much of a Christian or much of a devoted Christian because I showed it. You know, I wasn't really interested. I fell asleep at church. So just, there was a lot about me, you know, and people could have given up on me. People would just been like, ah, he's not the type. Um, but I'm thankful for the friends who persevered, who prayed for me, who loved me and showed me, showed me what I ultimately needed, even when I didn't think I needed it. So I think there's something here about understanding Jesus' heart for the lost. 
The lost are lost, and they look like they're lost. They're not going to look like Pharisees or something. They're not church-ready. They're not cleaned up. They're not what we expect, and that's the whole point. That is who Jesus' heart is for, and that is who Jesus has called us to love. So that's the one that he's pursuing, the person that he's pursuing. Next, we're going to look at the draw how Jesus goes about actually engaging this person who's very different from him and perhaps on a very different page from him. How does he draw people to him? So let's continue on in John 4. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, So you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. For the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship and spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we see an incredible dialogue that occurs between this, you know, this back and forth, back and forth between Jesus and the woman. And, you know, I want to point out a few really cool things, a really really powerful things that Jesus does um, that I think we can learn from as we think about, you know, how do, we, how do we draw other people to Christ? The first thing is that he contextualizes to her situation. Contextualizes is a big word. It just means he, you know, he adapts. He's, he makes things relevant and approachable and easy, you know, for her to be able to understand in her context. He doesn't use these crazy words or these things that she doesn't know. First thing we see, he uses the analogy of water. When they're sitting by water, he's, you know, she's coming here to draw water. It's an it's, it's analogy she can relate to, but it's also a very powerful analogy because it represents something deep about her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Think about what this woman was in. She was needing satisfaction. That was the main kind of key aspect of where she was. She needed satisfaction. She had been finding, trying to find satisfaction in all these relationships. Presumably, she'd encountered repeated betrayal in her as she tried to find her worth and value in these romantic relationships, and all she had experienced was rejection and being an outcast. But like somebody who doesn't have any better options, she continued to put herself in these situations because she needed to fill a thirst and a void in her heart. 
What she needed was satisfaction. And what Jesus said spoke to where she was, was able to draw out this deep need and this deep sense in her. The way he presents it is contextualized. He doesn't just, you know, all right, it's time to share the gospel, so flip with me to Genesis, you know, you know, God created the world in six, six seven days, you know, and then there's the fall, you know, and like a lot of times we think about sharing the gospel, like, okay, you know, I gotta give you this whole theological picture and background. You know, she would have just been like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, sir, and I'm not that interested, to be honest, right? But he, he goes directly to the point where she is. He doesn't use these fancy words, Jesus died on the cross for sins. What are you even talking about? What does that even mean? He goes straight, he presents the gospel in a way she'll understand. You have a thirst that needs to be satisfied, and I can feel, I can do something about that. He points him to her. I was talking to somebody about preparing this, and somebody said, well, that's kind of cheating because Jesus is prophetic, you know, and, you know, he could, you know, you're right in saying, oh, I can't do that. I can't tell if someone's had five husbands, so how the heck am I supposed to do this? You know, but I think everything that Jesus does here is a pointer for a larger scale and a more, more, you know, on a time scale, a larger time scale way in which we can actually do this. What he really did was he, he knew her and he understood her. And he was able to do that because he was Jesus. But I ask, aren't we able to do so if we also take the time to listen? If we also take the time to understand? Maybe we can't get to, you have five husbands, the one is not your husband immediately like the way he did. But isn't that something we could have all arrived at if we had taken time to love, to be friendly, to, to be proximate, to be close to this person? Couldn't have been able to find that out. You don't need to be a prophet to figure that out. It's something I think that we can all do. And if anything, it's a call for us to approach situations first, to learn, to listen, and to understand, to really get to know people for who they are. Um, I included this kind of quote in here because I think this is an illustration of the image that Jesus uses. It's actually a very deep and beautiful image from earlier. Um, from Jeremiah, he says, For my people, this is God speaking, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Doesn't this describe aptly where this woman was at? Second, he presents a compelling alternative. He presents something. He doesn't just go, okay, that's just where you are. You're thirsty. Good luck with that. <laughs> no. he, he presents something actually very compelling and beautiful, right? Um, first of all, you know, and he uses it using the narrative. He says, okay, I got living water. That sounds pretty good to me. And whoever drinks of this water, I will give him, will never be thirsty again. And it takes a while for the woman to catch on. That is a metaphor. You know, but he gives something really compelling that captures her attention, right? She's immediately interested. Wait, this is something that I actually kind of need, and I'm down to hear more about this, right? And he goes on to explain what that is, so he doesn't just give an empty promise. Um, he gives an answer to her deep need for satisfaction. And what that answer is, is worship. Uh, he directs her to this concept of worship. He says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For the Father is seeking such people to worship you. He's saying, oh, Samaritan woman, you have been trying to find your satisfaction, your love, your belonging, you know, in other relationships. And I'm going to show you where it's really found. You know, in this right, loving relationship with God, where you, worship, where, where you engage in this fulfilling and this powerful, this, this what you've been called to do to worship. People pointed about, you know, how this has been such a, actually a warm and powerful welcoming call that he does that. The Samaritans were people who were used to thinking they were away from God's presence. I mean, the Jews had made that clear. 
y'all aren't good enough, you know, y'all are unclean, y'all don't do those kinds of things. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who think that way too. They think that they're not clean for church. Church people won't accept them. They feel like they've committed certain sins or things that, that they could never approach the presence of God. And the Samaritan woman perhaps was in that position too. But look at how Jesus welcomes her using this language of worship. You're included now. Father's seeking you to worship. You get to be a part of this. And God wants you. He wants you to join in in this, in this beautiful, this picture of what he is doing, bringing people in to worship him. What, a, what an incredible story. And what is something that, that really does hit home to where she is and what she needs, what she needed to hear this whole time. So I think for us, it's important for us to first examine and think about do we find compelling beauty in the gospel? Is it just something that we feel like, oh, I just got to share this, this something because it's, you know, obligatory and this is what Christians do? Or are we amazed at the gospel as well, that we understand this is amazing, this is good news for people, this is compelling, and this is beautiful. I've recently been able to, over this last month, have a number of conversations with people who are either not Christian or, you know, kind of in this place of seeking um, and it's just, it's just been amazing, I think, just being able to just talk about the gospel, just talk about the beauty gospel. And, you know, it's just something, as I was sharing with other people, I was just wowed and amazed at it. Like, as we were together trying to arri arriving at, like, what the gospel meant, you know, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy. I can't believe I actually believe this. And I can't believe I get to be a part of this, you know. Alone among the worldviews, the gospel gives a gritty and realistic view of our nature. It tells us about how sinful we are, more than we've ever dared we believe. Yet at the same time, along among the worldviews, it gives us a real and powerful hope. It says that we are simultaneously more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope, even in our sinfulness. That is the power of the gospel, and, and people need to hear it. <laughs> people want to hear it. Isaiah 55, it says, this is kind of another Old Testament passage that captures this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. This is the heart of the gospel right here. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. I think one reason why we often aren't able to explain the gospel is because I think sometimes we have a limited view of what the gospel actually means. And I think if I were to ask a lot of you guys, you know, share the gospel with me right now, you probably would say something along with Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But that is only one thread of the gospel, a very important thread, um, but one thread. And I think that's why sometimes we struggle to share this good news, to genuinely think it good news to share with other people, is because we miss out on all these other aspects of what the gospel is. I want to just present, I just wrote down four different things I noted from the gospels as different facets of the gospel that, that people might hook on to different kinds of things. You know, the one we're usually, you know, most comfortable with is this idea of guilt, forgiveness, and acceptance. You know, I have guilt, and God gives me forgiveness and acceptance. And that's captured this idea of leprosy and uncleanness, how Jesus makes people clean, how you right? And so that might work for people who are currently, like, struggling with self-condemnation and feeling worthless. You know, that might, you know, that might be very powerful in what people need to hear. But that's not everybody. A lot of people necessarily don't respond to that. And sometimes we think, oh, that's all the gospel is, so they're only going to be interested if I share this very specific dimension with them. 
But consider these other dimensions of what the gospel promises. Thirst. He promises emptiness to satisfaction. This is the one we saw with the woman. Right? There are many people who are chasing all kinds of things, and we can tell them, hey, it's not going to satisfy you. You know what's going to satisfy you? God. God is. He's the one who made you. Lameness and blindness is often a metaphor for dysfunction to thriving. There are a lot of people who live very dysfunctional lives and who, you know, and, and, we can, and we can point to these kinds of things. You can say, hey, it's dysfunctional because, you know, you're trying to find your hope and your, you know, your meaning in your work and this or in that or those kinds of things. You know, when God really wants you to be thriving, he wants to give you abundant life. Who doesn't want abundant life? Who doesn't want their life to be filled with purpose and meaning? Finally, this lost sheep, you know, this aimlessness and pointlessness. There are people whose lives are totally fine. They don't feel like they have need, but they still feel this sense of emptiness. And society tells them, that's just how life is. Just kind of deal with it, right? How much more can we offer when we come into the lives and say, no, you were created for way more than just having a nice house and having a nice car and just, you know, things are fine. You know, you were created for this direction and purpose to worship God. There's so many aspects, and I'm sure there's more than this. You can be creative about it. My point is that there are many threads of the gospel. There's many ways in which the gospel presents itself as good news to people. We don't have to just stick with Jesus died on for your sins. Although at some point, you know, I hope that that would come into the conversation as well. We can start with, we can present different aspects. I think what we need is a fuller view of the gospel. I've been reading this book called Telling a Better Story, and I would recommend it. I think it's a great book for, you know, it's, the subtitle is How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. Um, I'm not going to read what I wrote up there. You can read it, but I want to just quickly summarize. Like, his main point is that we need to update our ways that we share the gospel. You know, we, a lot of our ways are from the 50s. You know, you assume that they're Christian. You assume that they want to go to church, and you just tell them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and they understand what you're talking about. They, grew up, they all grew up in church. They all heard it before. You just need to remind them. That is not the case today. People aren't waiting around for relationship with God for their sins to be divinely forgiven. You're using that language. People are not going to be interested. Right? It's essential to our task, then, is learning how to help others see the splendor of God and his purposes by reimagining the world through the Christian story. Um, and then he talks about how we should tell a better story, how we need to be creative about actually contextualizing and helping people to see how this relates to where they are and how it gives them hope situation. Because who doesn't want hope, right? And finally, the last aspect I see about how Jesus does this is he does not you know, abortion and LGBTQ, and we think about and sometimes we just, we just get sidetracked, I think. You know, we, we, we think we have to answer all these things in order for them to encounter Jesus, when it's really the other way around. We lead people to encounter Jesus first, and as they encounter Jesus, hopefully they're able to come to their own Share a gospel like Jesus, contextualizing and listening, showing others the beauty of the good news, and ultimately keeping the main things, the main things. 
bear with me a little bit. We got one last section to end on, and I want it, you know, it, would be, it wouldn't be complete to show you the outcome of what happens, of how the Samaritan woman was transformed by this encounter. In John 4, it continues and says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. There it is. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for now we have heard of ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And that's kind of how this little arc ends. Um, the witnessed becomes the witness. It says here, the woman left water jar and went into the town and said to people, her life was completely interrupted by this encounter that she had with Jesus, so much that she forgot about what she was actually at the well to do in the first place. All of a sudden, getting water for the day became less important because she had encountered this living water, this greater thing, so much more than she could, you know, so much more important um, than what she was originally planning on doing. I find what's so beautiful about this is so how natural the transition is from this woman from encountering Jesus to telling other people about him. I love it. She didn't need evangelism training. She didn't take discipleship classes. She wasn't even aware that there was a Great Commission because it probably wasn't given yet. You know, there was no call to command. There was no, okay, let me teach you the, the Romans wrote. There wasn't any of that. Why? Because she just, she encountered Jesus. She was amazed by him. So she's like, I'm both, I'm, I'll tell other people in my village about this, you know? And it wasn't necessarily easy for her. She had to overcome her outcast status. She had to overcome her shame, you know. But it was so compelling and so powerful for her. She couldn't go. She couldn't. She just. She couldn't help herself. She had to go and tell people. She had to go and share about what it was. And I think that moment it shows what witnessing really is. It's not this complicated thing. It's not this thing that you have to be trained. You have to be some capital E evangelist to do. It's simply pointing and sharing to other people about what you have seen and what you've encountered. I want to suggest that that desire to share the gospel and the good news is probably somewhere in all of us. If we've really encountered God, if we've really seen him as good news, I would argue that each one of you probably has a desire, you know, to, to make a note. You guys want other people to know. But why don't we often do so? I don't want to get into this so much, but I would argue the primary reason why we don't share is not because we don't want to share, not because we don't have this vision, this imagination of, wow, how awesome would it be if I could share with this person, they really seem to need Jesus. It's not because we don't have that desire. It's because we have barriers. Um, we have things, right, that get in the way that make it hard. And I'll just briefly kind of share about some of these things. Um, one of them is fear and discomfort. Um, a man once, Bill Bright once wrote a book called Witnessing Without Fear. And then another man wrote a book about his book and said, I put that book in my fiction category in my library. He's saying there's no such thing as witnessing without fear, at least to most people I know. There's always fear and there's always discomfort. That's just part of the story. That's just how it works. Um, but you can get over it and you can see, you can get over the hump to see the joy on the other side of people coming to know him. 
Sometimes I think another thing is a non-conversational understanding of sharing. We have this, we grew up with maybe some little bit of trauma. We're like, oh man, like, you know, I had these evangelists push all this stuff on us. It was very uncomfortable and it's very bad. And we have this idea that if we are to share, it has to be in this way that we've learned that we have to go and present something to someone we don't know and it has to be awkward, you know? And that's, that's not, you know, that's so black and white that evangelism is either that or we just shut up and we don't say anything. There is a conversational idea here that we see Jesus embody that is very simple, that is very respectful, um, that is very relational, that we can all engage in. And it's not, it's not project, it's not I need to get you somewhere by some time. It's simply loving and being faithful and, and showing what we've seen. And finally, I think for some of us, I think there is this kind of sense that we no longer believe in sharing. Um, I think there is a lot of cognitive dissonance when we believe the gospel to be good news and we don't share with other people. Because what we're saying, essentially, is it's not good enough news that I need to share with other people. And so there's this cognitive distance where I'm like, wow, people need to hear the gospel, and in my actions, I'm not actually doing anything about it. And usually what happens with cognitive distance is one of the belief dies. And the belief that dies is the one that you're not acting on. Um, so I think for a lot of us, you know, exactly this is exactly on my wavelength right now and I was just like wow you know the harvest indeed is plentiful God is drawing people people who we don't even know um, who have this desire that, that have never perhaps even shared that with another human soul um, who have this thirst who have this great desire to know him so let's participate with Jesus on this great privilege of drawing unlikely people to him so that in him they might find satisfaction forgiveness and abundant life. Let's pray, and as we kind of go into this, especially as, as we are in this rhythm of Lent right now, I want to invite us actually to pray a little bit more uh, proactively than we normally do, um, to kind of intercede about certain things. So as we pray, I want to encourage you to pray about a few different topics. Um, and I'm going to list them out as we pray. So first, let's, let's pray together as a church for our hearts as a church. Let's pray for us, let's pray for our neighbors around us, let's pray that God would rekindle a fire and a joy to share who he is with those around us. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would renew our joy in the gospel. Father, we pray that you would God, we have so many fears, we have so many, so much cynicism sometimes, Lord. God, we just want to give those things up to you. God, renew our joy. Renew our joy, renew our faith. That you move, that you are indeed at work in those around us. Renew our joy, Lord. Next, let's pray for our community groups. You know, we have an active way to live this out, actually, this, this next season. We're, you know, we're pursuing these missional community groups where we're actively thinking about how do we reach out to our friends, our neighbors, those around us, and how do we, you know, incorporate them in? How do we show them, you know, this life that we have in Christ? So let's pray for community groups that as we go into our planning phase, you know, as we think about serving and planning for serving and planning for you know, these outreach dinners or whatever, let's just pray that, you know, God would bless it 
and that he would be giving us the opportunities, he'd be leading us to the people, um, he would just be showing us how to do this. Lord, we want to play for, pray for our community groups, Lord. God, we just pray that you bless them. We pray that you would multiply them. We pray that you would make them just times where we really are able to see your gospel at work, not only in our hearts, but in those around us. To be with us as we plan and as we envision and as we dream together about what you could be doing through us and in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And finally, um, last one, <laughs> let's spend a little bit of time praying for God to put a few specific people perhaps in our hearts. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, it can just be one person, you know, as a concrete step for God, you know, give, just, you know, give me an opportunity, give me, show me, Lord, what a little step of faith looks like. So let's ask God to put a few, put one person maybe in your heart that you might be able to pray for and reach. Father, we thank you for your invites for us to enjoy and to, to, to just join you on this journey. God, we just pray, Lord, um, that you would be putting that one in our hearts. We pray that you would be giving us opportunities to love them, to show the love that we desire to show them. Help us to break past a little bit of the superficiality sometimes. And help us, Lord, to sincerely and joyfully and respectfully help them to see something more compelling than it is in this life right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.